This is Chapter 140 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, New York Times bestseller Steve Barry helps us plan our next European vacation. We chat mutual dreaming and reoccurring nightmares with Colleen Oakley. Then it's a love story featuring a ghost. Or maybe it's a ghost story about love. You be the judge. Here's a fun fact. There are over a thousand places around the world that make the UNESCO World Heritage List. The honor is bestowed on places the group considers of outstanding universal value and includes natural wonders like the Everglades and historic places like the Giza pyramids. They also happen to be places that former Justice Department agent Cotton Malone tends to leave a little less pristine than he found them. His latest adventure is no different. I recently spoke with Cotton creator Steve Barry about the Warsaw Protocol. In this newest Cotton Malone adventure, we find our retired agent racing around Europe to gain access to a private auction where some very sensitive information about the Polish president is being offered to the highest bidder. Tell me what inspired this latest adventure. It was Poland itself. I love Poland. It's one of my favorite places in the world. I've been trying to get cotton there for years. And so I finally came got a story that I could put together. And now the American reader can learn a lot about this country, which is uh, one of the most interesting in the world. Uh, you know, I have to say, I think a lot of readers, and myself included, will be surprised to learn how fraught and unstable and hard the political and living situation in Poland has been over the centuries. Oh, yeah. It's been, I mean, they've, they've been the battleground of Europe because they don't have any natural uh, border on their east and west side. So everybody just comes right across and all the wars got fought on Polish soil. And in 1795, the whole country got wiped off the map, but it came back and it's still coming back to this day. A lot of the action takes place at the world famous salt mine in uh, Wiliszka. And that seems like an incredible place to visit firsthand. It is. I was there twice and I went down to level nine, which is <clears throat> the deepest level in the mine, about 900 feet underground. It was quite spectacular down there. And I knew once I went and toured that whole complex that that had to be in the novel. So the whole climax of the book takes place there underground and, and what is truly a wonder of the world. If, a, if any of the listeners get a chance, they should definitely go and visit it. I know you mentioned that Poland itself uh, inspired this particular book. And I know that you and your wife love to travel. Is it always that the places you visit inspire your stories or do you visit it places you want to write about? It's a little bit of both. Uh, a little bit of both. Um, I'm going to Romania in a few in a few weeks. Uh, I want to do a novel there, so I'm hoping I'll get inspired when I was there. Uh, Poland I went to three times before it finally came to me, so it's a little bit of both. Uh, most of my ideas, most of my creativity comes from travel and from being on the ground and seeing things. There's just no substitute for that. And I think, you know, the current state of politics seems to influence your books a little bit, too. And I find it really interesting that the presidents whom Cotton has worked under have shared personality traits with whoever is currently in the White House at the moment. Was it difficult for you to completely change the atmosphere in which Cotton exists and works with the current president in the book, Warner Fox? Yeah, I had to change it because Danny Daniels came out of office and Danny was a pretty much a straight shooter, you know, no nonsense kind of guy. So whoever takes over for Danny as the next president can't be the same personality. So it was a little bit, uh, you know, mandated by the fact of how Danny was developed. So Warner Fox is an interesting guy. He's got some flaws. He, he has some good parts, but he has some bad parts. And him and Cotton butt heads. And in this book, they really butt heads. 
and this headbutting is going to continue for a series of books where Stephanie Stephanie's professional life is somewhat in jeopardy, and this is something I'm going to a recurring theme that's going to go through the next books. But I just wanted him, I wanted my new president to be different, and I wanted it instead of it being a close relationship, I wanted more an adversarial relationship. I think conflict makes it more interesting. You said you're traveling to Romania next. Is that where Cotton's next adventure might take him, or do you have an idea well, what the next book will bring already? No, no next book's finished. You stay a year ahead in the book business, so a full year ahead. It's already turned in. It'll, it involves Germany, South America, and South Africa. It's called the Kaiser's Web. It's a really cool story that Cotton's going to get caught up in. And and uh, and then Romania may be in a couple of years. I've got to get there. I've got to see it. got to get a feel for it, figure a story, and, and put it all together. I love that readers can travel the world while never leaving their comfy armchair if they're reading one of your books. That's the whole idea. The the locales become a character of the novel, and I, I do that on purpose, and I'm hoping that it inspires people to go and see these wondrous things. I mean, you 100% have inspired me to try to get to Poland the next time I find myself in that part of Europe. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Steve Barry, the next book, The Warsaw Protocol. Thank you so much for, for talking to us today. Thank you so much. Fate, free will, dreams, and soulmates, they all play into You Were There Too, the new thought-provoking and emotional novel from Colleen Oakley. It's not often that a book brings us to the verge of tears, but boy, did this one. The story centers around Mia, a happily married woman whose life gets turned upside down when she meets the stranger she's been dreaming about for years in real life. Colleen tells me it all started with an article she was writing about sleep. Before I was a novelist, I was a journalist, a freelance writer for a lot of women's magazines. And about four years ago, I was doing an article for WebMD, um, something about sleep. And as I was researching it, I got down one of those rabbit holes on the Internet, as one tends to do. And I came across a study on dreams. And I've always been fascinated by dreams because I'm a very vivid dreamer. Do you dream a lot? Are you like a vivid dreamer and remember your dreams? I know that I'm a vivid dreamer. I don't always remember them. And then I'm also one of those people who something happens and I wonder, wait, did that actually happen or did I dream that? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So same for me. So when I came across the study, I just kind of um, stopped because the study said that um, there was enough anecdotal evidence that mutual dreaming Um, scientists could say that mutual dreaming was a real phenomenon. And mutual dreaming is when two people, usually they're quite close siblings or mother and daughter or best friends, um, go to sleep on the same night and share the same dream starring each other. Um, Has that ever happened to you? (laughs) No, I can't say I've, I've, I've ever had that kind of dream. Have you? It's not happened to me either, but it's funny because I've been on book tour the past uh, month or so And in every single crowd, there's at least one or two, sometimes three or four people that say that this has happened to them. So it's actually really quite common. And that's what the study was was saying, that these scientists agreed that it happened. They just couldn't say why it happens. Um, And I just found that fascinating. And I really wanted to explore what that connection uh, could mean. You know, why why would people share these dreams and um, and what what connection they might possibly have? And in your case, though, we have two people who've never met each other having mutual dreams. Exactly, exactly. So being a fiction writer, I had to kind of turn it up a notch. And I chose to use two strangers who've been dreaming about each other and then meet in real life and have to find out what that means. I love as you're reading the book, you realize that 
these two people, Mia and Oliver, their lives, they've always kind of been circling around each other a little bit. And as you right. read in the book, you're dropping all these little clues here and you realize that they may have passed each other or maybe they had an interaction in a neighborhood spot. And maybe this is the reason why. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I think a lot of us probably have those thoughts. I know I do of, you know, why the people come into our lives when they do, you know, why am I, why did I meet my husband when I did? Um, <clears throat> you know, why are the friends in my lives the, the people that I've met along the way? And is there a rhyme and reason to it all, or is it all just um, happenstance? And so I had a lot of fun kind of playing with that idea. And that idea and kind of, it kind of falls into a little bit too with the idea of soulmates. Do you actually believe in soulmates? That's such a hard question. I don't think that there's just one person out there for everybody. But I do kind of believe in that energy of that feeling when you meet somebody and you feel like you've known them for longer <laughs> than the two seconds that you've just met them. There's that, I don't know if it's energy or frisson or whatever it is, and, and not just the people that you fall in love with, but friends. I mean, some of my best friends, when I met them, it felt like I had known them for much longer. And so I kind of believe in soulmates to that extent, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think a lot of people out there, myself included, have been on that end where you meet somebody for the first time and you just hit it off and you can't explain why. Yes. And then I start to think, you know, my mind always goes like, have we been here before? You know, like, did we know each other in a previous life? Is that what this is? I love thinking about all those things. So does that mean you are a past life believer or you just find it interesting? I just find it interesting. I don't know that I'm a firm believer in it. I would like to think that because I would like to think that we get another chance and that we get to, you know, have all the people we love in our lives again in a new way. So I think it's fun to think about. I wouldn't say I'm a firm believer in it. The conversation in the book, there's also this idea of fate versus free will. Do you find yourself on one side of that argument versus another? Yeah, I think, um, again, I like to think of fate and destiny and soulmates. And I like to think that my husband and I are supposed to be together, right? But I do also, I'm a realist. And so I know that marriage is hard work. And I know that it's a choice that you have to make every day to be with that person, even when sometimes you want to strangle them. <laughs> <laughs> and it, the emotions in your book, I know that, it, you know, it, in certain parts of it left me so raw. And oh, I'm sure you've you've heard that from other readers. What has the reaction been from readers who you've gotten to meet on your book tour or just in general? Yeah, I think um, a lot of readers are connecting to this book. I think they're connecting. I think a lot of people are fascinated by dreams like I am. So just the premise in itself, people find interesting. But um, I, I would say my biggest compliment is when people have that raw emotional reaction and they find themselves crying or just super connected. Uh, to the book or the characters, because I was so connected to the book when I was writing it. I'm so connected to these characters. Um, I was crying as I was writing some scenes. So I think that's the biggest compliment as a writer that other readers are finding that same connection. I want to talk about the opening of your book, because it's a scenario that's become so commonplace in our society, which I'm not really giving anything away when I say it's, it's a mass shooting incident. Why did right. you choose that that sort of event to be the opening of your book and ends up being the climax of the book as well. Yeah, I think because it all is all too common um, in our current culture. Um, 
unfortunately. And I think it's something a lot of people can relate to because I think it's something a lot of us fear. I mean, I know I fear when I go out to um, big public situations, even when I take my kids to the movies. I, uh, you know, look for the exits and I think about what I will do if somebody comes in with a gun. Um, I think it's a very common scenario that we all think about. And so a lot of people could relate to. Um, And I, you know, I just put it in the book. I didn't, it's not political. It's not politicized. Um, So I didn't put it in for that reason. I just put it in because I knew people could relate to it. I think there also seems to be a natural connection with dreams because you hear all the time when something tragic happens that there are people who have had dreams about that exact event happening. Exactly. And and a good example of that is the World Trade Center, uh, 9-11 tragedy. A lot of people, and particularly in the New York area, kind of came out of the wood, woodwork, hundreds of people saying that they had been having recurring nightmares leading up to that incident. Um, and of course, you can say, you can be a skeptic and say, well, that's coincidental. You know, people maybe were dreaming about buildings or planes or Um, You know, and then they made the connection afterward, or you could think that they might have been having psychic or precognitive dreams of that of that huge tragedy. After writing this book, are you over dreams? You still run to Google when you have like a crazy dream to try to figure out what it means? I don't think I'll ever be over dreams because I think the, the, the most fascinating thing is that we'll never know, you know, like you can analyze it all day long, but how will you ever really know if you're right? And so I can think about them and analyze them forever. I still have vivid dreams every single night. I still tell my husband about my crazy dreams, so I don't think I'll ever be over them. Now, do you get up and write them down or you remember them in the morning? I don't. I remember them. So I rarely, some every now and then I'll write one down, particularly if it's a really strong emotive dream. Um, I'll write it down. But mostly I remember, I remember dreams from when I was three and four years old, ones that were that vivid. What's the craziest one that you remember that you're willing to share? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Let's see. Well, the most recurring nightmare I have, this is actually kind of funny. So I have four kids and my um, third and fourth kid were twins. They were a big surprise to my husband and I. Um, and so my biggest nightmare after I had my four kids is that I'm pregnant again. (laughs) And it's very real and very anxiety making. So I'm like, how can I have five kids? Or sometimes it's uh, twins or triplets. And I'm like, how can I have seven kids? (laughs) That seems to be rooted in a very real fear then. (laughs) I think so. Yes. (laughs) I think the the reoccurring one I have is it's one of those silly ones is I always end up leaving the house without shoes on and I end up being somewhere where I don't have shoes on. And it makes no sense to me because how can you forget to put shoes on before you leave the house? That is so funny. Do you feel anxious when you don't have the shoes on or just like forgetful and mad at yourself? Uh, I guess it's a little bit of both. Like, how could I do that? And also, how am I walking around barefoot like it's no big deal? I I ride the subway every morning to work. There's no way I would ever forget to wear my shoes. (laughs) No, nobody wants to be on the subway barefoot. Exactly. So, Colleen, what are you working on next? Um, So, my next book comes out next May, May 2021, and it's called The Invisible Husband of Frick Island. And it's... um, kind of a fun ensemble cast. It's quirky. There's a love story. Um, And in the back of You Were There Too is a short little synopsis. So people, if they pick up the book, can find out what my next one is about. And is it based on maybe another article that you were writing or you just, it It comes from somewhere else? It's based on an article that I read. Um, 
and I don't want to give too much else away at this point. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep your secrets mm-hmm. for you. We'll leave it there. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. In the meantime, you can go pick up You Were There Too, Colleen Oakley. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you. It was so fun. I appreciate you having me on. And sweet dreams. You too. <laughs> The Regrets, the new novel from author Amy Bonifons, isn't your typical boy-meets-girl love story. That's because in this case, the boy is actually dead. A ghost. A spirit trapped between worlds because of a past mistake. Sounds strange, but actually the story itself isn't as strange as it seems. She recently told me where she got the idea for her different kind of love story. Well, the ideas came from several places, um, as they often do. Um, I had written a short story a while ago. Um, it's in my collection, The Wrong Heaven. It's called Blackstones, and it's about um, a woman who encounters the angel of death, and he's very sexy. <laughs> and he gives her this little black stone um, that she has to swallow that kind of begins the death process. And for a while, since I wrote that story, I've been interested in sort of expanding that expanding on that conceit and wondering if there was a novel there, but I kind of played around with different storylines and different ways to do it. Um, And then it started to really gel when I I hit on this idea of the man who is kind of stuck between this world and the afterlife. Um, And I'm not really sure how that came about. It's one of those things that just happened. Um, But once it did, everything fell into place. So I don't think I'm I'm insulting the story when I say it's a little weird, because it is a little weird. Yeah, no, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it's a, it's like a, it's a somewhat normal dissection of the evolution of a breakup. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's these bizarre conceits, but at the same time, you know, I think it's a really, it's a experience that a lot of us can relate to, of being with someone sort of ill-advised, <laughs> who has a big secret or like a really big red flag, um, but you go for it anyway because there's just so much feeling there. And then, of course, it, it deteriorates, and the fact that you knew it was going to deteriorate doesn't make it any less painful or intense. I hope the book captures that. I think it does, and I think it also, you know, it ends up being funny because you take it to such an extreme. The red flag in this case is the uh-huh. fact that this guy is dead. <laughs> Yeah, I can't quite get much worse than that. (laughs) No, I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, try explaining that to your mom, right? And I think that's funny where the character of Rachel, she finds herself pulling away from friends because she really can't explain that to her good friends. Right. It's a lesson in there, too, that we can feel dead and unconnected even though we're alive. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a kind of halfway state, too, that a lot of people live in where they're they're here, but they're not here, you know, and it's really hard to build relationships in that state, although it's tempting because when you have that kind of empty feeling and you're both here, but not here, it's very tempting to, um, to connect with someone and to believe that they might connect you to the world or kind of take you out of yourself. And Rachel's also one of those characters who she wasn't necessarily living completely in reality to begin with. She's a, she's a daydreamer right. for, as how you describe yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. She's a big daydreamer. She's a librarian. She reads a lot. And another thing about her is that she considers herself to be a failed writer. Um, She and her best friend, Jimmy, exchange these long um, text exchanges with each other, and they call them failed novels because both of them once wanted to be writers and kind of gave up. 
Um, and it was sort of, uh, that was sort of my way explore, of exploring how um, I think most people who end up being writers kind of, um, I don't know, I was going to say suffer from, though I'm sure it has its benefits too, <laughs> this condition of, of kind of living your life and observing it at the same time. So sometimes you're you're in a moment, but you're not really in that moment because you're thinking, ooh, how would I describe this later? Um, and that's definitely a, a condition of Rachel's life. And it makes it easier for daydreams about love to thrive and maybe more difficult for her to connect with an actual person until this very extreme situation comes into her life. So I feel we have to get the next question out of the way, which is that of ghost sex, because this does happen (laughs) in the book. How did you decide what that was going to be like? (laughs) Um, You know, it wasn't like something I thought about in advance. I just kind of took it scene by scene and thought about, you know, how would this interaction go between these two characters, one of whom has a sort of half body. (laughs) Um, But it it was a very freeing conceit because it allowed me to explore that idea of, um, of sex as a sort of transcendent escape from oneself. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I write about sex a lot and in my um, story collection, there's a lot of awkward sex. I think, you know, real life sex can be great. It can also be awkward. Um, but with this conceit, with the, the ghost, you know, he, he's not, um, I guess the advantage of not having a regular body is you're also not um, burdened or trapped by all the constraints of a regular body. And so there was a freedom there for me to play around and think about, you know, like what sex could be <laughs> if if these two people met and didn't have the usual constraints of a pair of lovers. So Thomas, who who's our ghost in this book, giving nothing away, he's he's died, he's dead, and he hasn't crossed over. And there's some rules that he's given, and he meets Rachel, and he decides to throw all these rules out the window. And and they seem that these rules really exist to avoid the sticky situation that the two of them find themselves in. And you label it as regrets. Do you think it's possible to live without regrets? You know, I, it's so funny. I was doing an interview a few days ago and the the interviewer asked me, do you know this poem by, by Vera Pavlova that begins, if there was nothing to desire, then there was nothing to regret, something like that. And I actually had never heard of it, but I was like, oh my God, that's the whole idea of my book. I can't (laughs) believe I had never heard that poem. And I think it's true. I think that having a desire and acting upon it is a huge risk, right? But at the same time, never having desire or never acting upon your desires is so much worse. So at least the possibility of regret is something that I think is constantly present in our lives if we're really living. Um, But I thought a lot about regret (laughs) while while writing this book and and afterwards, and I think... um, you know, there's a difference between regret and just having a painful experience. And if we take all of our experience as, as useful and meaningful, then then we don't need to really regret any of it, if that makes sense. Um, I hope that's a kind of piece that, that at least some of the characters reach at the end of the book, but um, I don't want to give anything away. No, of course not. I I found it that in your world, it's kind of reassuring, but it's also kind of sad that 
even once we die, we're not necessarily free from maybe who we were or what we still want and don't feel we've achieved. And, you know, of course, this, the metaphysics of this book and the vision of the afterlife is not what I actually believe. You know, I don't, I don't actually think I'm going to end up at this Kafka processing center like (laughs) Thomas does, but I do, I am interested in the fact that there, there are many cultures around the world, you know, that believe that our lives don't end when we die and therefore neither do our desires, neither do our regrets, neither do our um, conceptions of who we are and what we've succeeded at and what we failed at and, and our wounds and our inadequacies and all that. So, um, yeah, part of the conceit is sort of working through that idea that, you know, even <laughs> even death isn't really an escape from who we are. And these are characters who are trying to escape who they are and they don't they don't get to in the end. Um, and act, really none of us do. I want to ask you about the the feeling, the air associated with with being a ghost and the things that are associated with the office in a way, if, if you want to put it that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Ha, it, it makes me think of how people have described actual encounters with ghosts or spirits or what have you. Have you ever had one of those experiences yourself? You know, I, I actually haven't. The closest thing that I've had is this one time um, a friend had just gotten back from Italy and she gave me this little, this beautiful little blue box that she'd gotten at a flea market. And um, I put it on my nightstand because it looked nice there. And in the middle of the night, I had this dream that this blue blue light or like blueness was entering my arm and kind of trying to overtake my body, like sort of possessing me. And um, I woke up and the feeling went away. But the next morning I was describing it to some to a friend um, and she was like, oh, my God, you need to get that box away from your bed because who knows what you know, spirits or creatures could could have come back with it from Italy. And I was like, you know what, just to be safe, I'm going to do that. And so I moved it away. I never had that experience again. But I don't know. That's the closest I've ever had. And that was a dream. Um, I do. I'm inclined to believe that people who say they've had experiences with ghosts um, aren't lying. Um, But having never experienced it myself, you know, beyond that one kind of weird dream experience, um, you know, I can't say for sure um, about anything. Listening to you retell that story, it makes a lot of sense to me now, too, why a lot of the interactions are dreamlike. Yes, I've always had a extremely active dream life. <laughs> I, I'm a person who, like, pretty much every morning I remember my dreams, and they're always really detailed and vivid, and they feel like real life. Um, I, I do have that feeling that Rachel describes in the book where she's, she sometimes can't remember whether something that happened was in her life or in a dream. So, um, you know, my characters have active dream lives as well. Um, and also even their real lives, I think, sometimes walk that line between reality and dream. What do you want readers to take away from the story overall? You know, um, I think I'm hoping first that people who resonate with these characters experience of, of love and of loss and of trauma that they see themselves in the book in some way and see their experience in some way. And that there's a comfort in, you know, seeing yourself in this very extreme non-realistic story. Um, and, you know, I, even though it's, it's a work of 
sort of, as you say, weird, bizarre, imaginative fiction, you know, I wouldn't be disappointed if it, you know, if, if it opens anyone's mind to the fact that there are different worlds, you know, um, and I don't know what those worlds are, but there's a world of dreams and there's wherever the dead go, you know, and um, I'm really fascinated by, by the intersection of our world with those worlds. So maybe we'll all find some sort of complementary weirdness, right? That we can attach ourselves <laughs> yeah. with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, maybe kind of accepting and valuing your own weirdness is, is something that, um, that I wish for all of us as well. We've been talking about The Regrets, author Amy Bonifons. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today to talk about it. Thank you so much. So did you catch that part about Amy and Colleen being active dreamers who remember everything? Maybe it's something all writers share. While you ponder that, let me tell you that next time around, we've got a debut novel that wants you to be a little bit more authentic with yourself and those around you. We like to share our authentic selves on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. Make sure you're following us there. Until next time, I'm Lisa Trunker.